Well, this morning we come to Ruth chapter 4, and as I mentioned, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 12, and so today we will consider Boaz our kinsman redeemer, and then next week we will conclude the book by returning once again to Ruth and thinking about uh, Ruth herself and the role that she plays within the history of redemption. But today we want to think about the man who we know is the hero of the story. Um, Ruth is a hero of sorts. There's no doubt about it. We've seen that. Uh, she's, she's the great protagonist who comes alongside uh, um, Naomi and who is willing to risk life and limb uh, to be with her. But it's at the end of the day, Boaz who comes in and rescues the rescuer, right? She re he rescues uh, Ruth and Naomi together. He is the kinsman redeemer. And as such, we know the, the picture of the great capital K, capital R, uh, kinsman redeemer of the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes in and rescues a helpless bride, uh, restoring her and the inheritance that her father, if you will, lost. Uh, we can see the grand story here played out within the story of Ruth as Adam, uh, through his disobedience, uh, squanders the inheritance of his descendants. And, and we can't blame Adam because we know that as the scriptures teach us, he is our representative. He's our perfect representative. So we have to be careful. Whereas, whereas Ruth could potentially blame and Naomi could potentially blame Elimelech, uh, we cannot do so with Adam. But nonetheless, Adam is our, is our forefather, and as such, he has, through his sin, squandered our inheritance, and, and here we are, destitute, if you will, uh, of it, on the other side of his sin, exiled, uh, if you will, like Ruth from her own home. And yet there is one, a kinsman redeemer, one who is in fact related to us, who is able, it is not required of him, but he is able to redeem us and to secure for us a seed, to secure for us a family, to secure for us a land, and to restore to us the inheritance that was lost. It's going to cost him infinitely more than it is going to cost Boaz. But nonetheless, the, the story of Ruth and the story, therefore, of Boaz is the story that should draw our eyes to the great kinsman redeemer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Boaz fills that role in the story, and hence I, I'm calling him the hero of the story, only because it's through him that we most clearly see the work of our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to think about him today, and I want us to just make three observations about him. The text has already been read. You'll remember that the way we left the text last week, as each of these chapters and sermons has kind of done for us, they've left us on a, a little bit of a cliffhanger. And uh, if, we're, if we're reading along at the pace we are, you feel those kind of cliffhangers, right? We're told, oh, it's the, you know, it's, it's a time of famine. And then we're, we're left at the end of chapter one. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. And it's a, that's a good cliffhanger. It's like, a, it's like a, ooh, maybe good things are about to happen. And then we ended chapter two with being told that, that Ruth was still living in the house of Naomi. And that's kind of a downer. Uh, we, we, we get the, we know from that what the writer is telling us that as, as, 
as good as things have begun to turn, there is some hope for them. She's gleaning in the fields of Boaz with the help and security and protection of Boaz. Nonetheless, something is still desperately missing. Ruth does not have a husband. There's no secured inheritance. The name of Elimelech, the family name, will die out uh, at the end of uh, at, at the end of Naomi uh, at the end of Naomi's life. It's it's over. And and when when Ruth goes, if she remains unmarried, what what hope is there then? Especially with Orpah back in uh, in Moab. So so we we're left with that kind of a downer. And then and then we get to chapter three, and things really begin to take a turn. And and Naomi comes up with this crazy scheme. Uh, you know, go make yourself available to Boaz there, kind of uncover his feet and lay down there in the darkness at the threshing floor and he'll tell you what to do next. Very murky things going on here. We're not sure what to, you know, we want to give Naomi the benefit of the doubt and assume that her intentions are good here, uh, but there's some odd stuff going on there. And, and so uh, she she gives Ruth just this horrible, terrible advice and uh, and Ruth does it and the Lord by his grace blesses it and praise God for the kind of man that Boaz is and Boaz receives her and protects her physically, right? Does not take advantage of her. But not only does he not take advantage of her, he kind of protects her dignity, right? And says, hey, we're going to keep this quiet here. Nobody's going to say anything about you coming to the threshing floor in the middle of the night. That will not circulate around old Bethlehem very well. So we're going to keep that to ourselves here. Protect your honor and your dignity. And you know what? I will do this. I will do what you are asking, Ruth. Uh, I will redeem you. I will go purchase you, essentially. Uh, not buying a woman in that sense, but by taking on whatever debt you have, I will bail you out. I will purchase whatever land you're about to lose and, and do that for you and try to secure your family's inheritance. I'll do that for you. But then we're left on a cliffhanger at the end of that chapter as well because Boaz breaks news to us. Boaz knows more about the family than Ruth does, and he knows apparently much more than Naomi does, which is shocking for small-town Bethlehem that Naomi's just forgetting about relatives left and right around here because she doesn't think there's any hope until she found out in chapter 2 that uh, that Ruth was gleaning in the fields of Boaz, and she thinks, Boaz? Huh. Hey, you know what? Actually, turns out he's a relative. Stay in his fields. Stay in his fields. There's some hope there. Well, apparently there's another guy. An even closer relative that Naomi apparently has forgotten about, but Boaz doesn't forget about. Boaz knows. And again, Boaz, this man of integrity, says to Ruth, I will do this for you, but you need to know there is a man, a kinsman, closer to you than I am. And he kind of has first rights of refusal here. So I will seek him out. And I will ask him if he will do the task of redeeming you. And if he does, he does. And you're taken care of. But if not, just know it will be covered. I myself will do it. You know, we, that leaves us on this cliffhanger because we're kind of wanting Ruth and Boaz to get together. right? We, we, we desire this in the story. Again, maybe it's just our sentimental selves that we have, but we want to see uh, Ruth and Boaz get together. But we want this particularly because we see the kind of man Boaz is. What a great man for Ruth. And also we know he has the means to provide for them. So we're kind of anxious for that. But we were left hanging off the cliff wondering how things would go. And that brings us to our text today. So I want us to think three thoughts 
about Bo. I want to see him, let's put it this way, through three lenses. First, I want us to see Boaz as a man of righteousness, a man of the Torah, a man of the law, a man of duty. This is all the first point. Okay, so you know, wow, that's a lot of points you got there. Uh, no, no, that's just the first point. Um, I want you to see him as a man of duty, responsibility, righteousness, Torah, keeping. What we see in Boaz is a man who knows the law. He cares about the law, right? He knows the gleaning laws. And yet he does not see them as burdens. He sees them as blessings. When, when, when Ruth comes into the field, he's not like, well, golly, you know, I hate giving up some of my, my profits here, but I have to do it. Who's that woman gleaning? Make sure you leave extra for her, right? Take care of her. He, he, the, the, the law for him... Is not this restrictive thing keeping me from really making the most of what I have. But it for him, the Torah is the means in which has said covenantal loyalty can be demonstrated and shown. And so he takes the Torah and uses it for the good of Naomi and of Ruth. The law for him, because he's a lover of God, he's not kicking against the goads, as you will, as, as uh, Paul, uh, the Lord says to Paul, he's not kicking against the law. He loves the Lord, and the law for him then becomes the tracks on which his train moves. It's not, it's not holding him back. It channels. It gives a channel for his love to move in. And we saw that with the, the gleaning laws. And also here now, He's a man who knows the Torah. He knows what a kinsman redeemer is supposed to do, but he also knows that, hey, there's someone else who has this privilege, if in fact he wants it, and responsibility to do for Ruth and Naomi what she is asking him to do. And he doesn't figure out a way to manipulate his way around it or say, hey, if we just do this quickly, there's nothing they can do to undo. You know, he's not, he's not trying to manipulate the situation. We've looked at this a couple times with Boaz. He's a man who trusts the will of the Lord. Whereas Naomi was the manipulator of providence, let's try and move God's hand. I think I see what he's doing here. Let's try and force his hand, put on something pretty and get down there and see what the Lord will do with it. That was Naomi's mindset. Boaz says, essentially, though we're not told the words directly, if the Lord wills it, he wills it. And it will be. So let me do my due diligence and go down, and I will not confront, but engage the man who has the privilege and the responsibility. And so he does, In our story begins with him now going down to the city gates. The, this is the center of business and cultural life in the town, is at the gates. And the elders would gather there, and this is where town business would be done, and this is where contracts would be made, and this is where, you know, the social buzz of life is happening. And so Boaz goes down, and he sits, and he waits, assuming at some point this kinsman, this other potential kinsman redeemer is going to come walking through. And so sure enough, he does. And he tells him, hey, come on over here and sit down. Now, you will notice, and the commentators all point this out, that he does not call him by name, and that's an important point. And we will come to that in my last point today, that this gentleman, this other potential kinsman redeemer, who is family, so it's not as if Boaz doesn't know his name, but nonetheless, the author of our story intentionally does not give us the man's name. And we'll talk about why that is here in a second. 
But he says, hey, friend, come, come on over here and, and sit down. And so he sits down and he says, hey, elders, we get, let's get some, we're going to need some witnesses in here. And so he gathers 10 witnesses because we're going to, I want to have this conversation and I want to make sure that it's on record. And so he sits down and he says, now, listen, uh, you know, you, we got this little situation here with Naomi and a piece of land is being sold, you know, in order to keep her out of, uh, you know, complete poverty. And uh, you are the closer relative, you know, what do you want to do here? And we'll talk about what the guy does in a second. But Notice that Boaz is going through the process. He's a man of the Torah, a man who does his due diligence. But then also, and, and again, we're not going to leave the story. I'm going to come back to what the man, the other man does. But just as another example of his, his motivations here, if you go over into verse 10, when finally the whole deal goes down and Boaz does uh, uh, seal the deal and commit to become the kinsman redeemer, Listen to his, what he calls the men to be witnesses of, right? Here, Boaz is saying in verse 10, here's what I think I'm doing, and here's what I am in fact doing. Moreover, so this is what you're witnesses of. If I go back to verse 9, Boaz said to the elders, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Killian's and all that was Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You're witnesses of that this day. That is to say, he doesn't say, I'm doing this because I just love Naomi. You know, Naomi's a real gorgeous you know, babe, and, uh, and I love her so much, and I just want to live with her. For, you know, no, he says, I'm doing this out of hesed, out of love, out of covenantal loyalty to my family. I am preserving what was Elimelech's and what has been lost so that he might have a name, so that his family might have an inheritance and so they might have the land. Now, I'm not saying Elimelech didn't love Ruth, right? I'm, I'm not saying that. But you see here the heart of the man. He's doing it because he believes it's his obligation to serve his family and to care for their covenantal needs. He is going to preserve their land and their inheritance, and he is going to perhaps raise up an offspring for his kinsman, Elimelech. So we see in Boaz a man of duty. And again, when we think of Boaz as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, indeed, Jesus was a lover of the law. Jesus said, do not think I came to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish it but I came to fulfill it. Every jot and tittle of the law, Jesus loved. He did not view it as burden. He did not view the law and obedience as something he had to begrudgingly do. For him, again, the law, the Torah, was a way of channeling his love, and he cared about it right down to the little punctuation marks on the letter. That's how much he loved the law. And while he was not obligated, just as Boaz here is not obligated to do this, he was not obligated to take Ruth, so also with the Lord Jesus Christ. He took it out of hesed, took it out of this covenantal obligation, covenantal responsibility that he willingly took upon himself for the sake of a potential bride, a foreign bride, right? A bride who was compromised, a bride who had was destitute. And we'll think about that next week when we look at Ezekiel 16, the text that I punted on um, for, for next week. 
So first, Boaz is a man of law and duty and diligence. Secondly, Boaz is a man of risk. He's a man of risk. Now here we get back to the deal that's going down. Boaz comes to the guy, this other potential kinsman redeemer, and he says, listen, I need to let you know something. I think I have the responsibility. I know I have the responsibility to let you know this. Look, there's Naomi and she has this piece of land and she's going to sell it basically to keep herself out of the, the poor house. And uh, you have the privilege of buying it back, of taking Naomi the widow as your own and, and, you know, and caring for her, providing for her, and then ultimately having the land. And the guy says, great. Yeah, great. I'll do it. You're like, well, that, that was, that was fast. It didn't take a lot of thinking because the mindset of the guy is thinking, okay, so I buy this land. Now, when you would buy the land as a kinsman redeemer, again, you were preserving the land for the inheritor of the dead guy. So ultimately, you would raise up offspring for Elimelech, and then Elimelech, that son, would receive the inheritance, not in your name. It would go back to Elimelech's line. So Elimelech's descendants would essentially be able to carry it on. It would not be an inheritance you would have or you could pass on to any other children. You pass on to this man's uh, a line. But he's looking at the situation. He's thinking, hmm, okay, I buy this piece of property, and... I get the old widow woman, and that's fine. We're not going to have any children. And so when she dies, I'll have the land, right? The land will stay with me, and I'll be able to do with it what I want. And so in, there's not very little thinking involved here. He, he, he very quickly does the math on this, right? He thinks it through, sees a real opportunity for investment. And when but he says, yeah, this is a no-brainer. Yeah, I'll do it. How much does it cost? I'll buy it up. And then, and then Boaz, slick Boaz, uh, says to uh, this man, this nameless man, he says, okay, great. You're willing to do that? Excellent. Now, by the way, I just got to drop one more thing on you here. You also, get Ruth, you also get Ruth the Moabite woman. Moabite. Right? You get her. She's in there. Oh, and she can still have children. So, hey, the good news is you get, you're going to get a wife out of this. In, in Ruth, and then you will be able to raise up children uh, unto Elimelech, and they'll inherit the land. So great. So you're willing then? What, you want to just sign here? We'll trade some sandals, and we'll, we'll, get, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll finish this thing? And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa. What, what, what's this about a Moabite woman? And he says, well, yeah, you, you know the deal. You get Naomi, but you also get Ruth the Moabitess. And, but you guys, sounds like you're going to be very happy. So it's good. No, hey, hold on now. You know, I got to, he says, he says, I've got an estate to think about. I, I can't do that, right? He says, this could ruin my estate. I'm sorry, I can't do it. I'm, I'm out of here. And, and he had no legal obligation to do it. It needed to be presented. He had no legal obligation to do it. And he says, no, 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 no. I can't. I can't I'll, I'd be risking way too much if I did this. And so he backs out of the deal. And he says, look, if you want it, Go ahead and do it. And, of course, Boaz says, fine, you're definitely not going to do it. And he says, no. And he says, okay, then I will do it. And here again, why I love this bit of the story is because we see the question that's presented, and, and that is, by what calculus do we operate? By what economy do we think? And here in this nameless man, and it's important that he is nameless because he is forgotten. 
we know what Boaz can't know. We know what this nameless guy can't know. We know what Ruth doesn't know or Naomi doesn't know. We know that a lot hangs in the balance here. We know that the guy who gets to marry Ruth is going to be in the line that leads to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer of Israel. And this guy passes, and he's forgotten. But Boaz takes her up on it. He shows the hesed, and he is not forgotten. And what's the difference between them? This man operates like Elimelech himself and like Naomi, who, for whom economic concerns are the chief concern. Like this guy looks at the scenario, immediately he's like, I'll take it. That's a great little investment right there. Whoa, it comes with the possibility of serving the family by raising up an offspring, which the Torah says, again, is a blessing to do for these people. You have two widows that you can care for, and you have a dead man with his two dead children, his two dead sons, to whom you can raise up an offspring and secure their line and their inheritance. And the guy's like, well, way too costly. Not doing that. I'm not going to risk my estate for that. His chief concern is economic. Right? That's the calculus he's operating. This is the same thing that Elimelech did. How am I going to feed my family? And again, there is a part of us that understands this. See, part of us looks sympathetically upon Elimelech and Naomi. Like, how else are you going to feed your kids? You've got to go to Moab, I guess. Because there's nothing more important than feeding your kids. Part of us gets that. Like, you're going to risk flushing your whole estate down the toilet? Who knows what, what this might mean? Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what's going to be to your reputation? You're marrying a, Mo a Moabite woman. And so he makes the decision not to do it. In the parable of the talents, the man, if you will, buries his talent. I'm not going to take that risk. But not Boaz. Boaz is not such a man. Boaz is a man who's willing to risk everything. And don't think he had nothing to risk. We know he did. He was a wealthy man. He was a man who had the means. And he is willing to risk it. He's willing to risk it by marrying a Moabite woman. He's willing to risk whatever it means to his estate. The same thing that this guy apparently was unwilling to risk. Boaz is a man saturated with his said. He is saturated with covenantal love and care and kindness. And so when the opportunity comes to help Ruth, I, mean, I don't know, maybe he did have a big crush on her. We don't, we don't know that. We just know that Boaz is willing to do for her what she asks. And when he gives his motivation, he says, I'm securing the line for my family, for Elimelech. He's a man of sacrifice. He's a man who takes the resources the Lord gives him and he operates in a kingdom calculus, willing to use what he has for the sake of of the kingdom, willing to lose his life, if you will, that he might save it, rather than the nameless man who seeks to save his life and who knows his estate. But we know what Jesus says about this stuff. When we get to Jesus, he warns us of being the nameless man. He warns us of being the rich young ruler who, when it gets down to it, and Jesus says, well, sell all you have, give it to the poor and come follow me, he walks away weeping. We know what Jesus says about the man who chooses mother and father, sister or brother, occupation or whatever, over obedience to the kingdom. Jesus says, you're not worthy of the kingdom. Very strong. Offensive. 
language. It's painful, cutting language when Jesus talks like that. But he does. Jesus himself was a man, as we've already quoted in Philippians chapter 2, who though he was equal with God, emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, a bondservant, and becoming obedient unto death. And Paul begins that text in Philippians 2 by saying, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's Jesus himself who says, if any man would come after me, let him pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. That is, walk in my footsteps. So Boaz has this mentality. Boaz is this precursor, if you will. He's a man of risk. But again, risk in what? Risk in what? Jesus, in that, in that, in that story of Jesus and the rich young ruler, when the rich young ruler walks away weeping, Jesus says, do you see how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? And the disciples, of course, are completely scandalized by this. They're just, they just, what is going on? How do you let such a good candidate, you know, for, for discipleship walk away? And, and Jesus just says, you know, or they ask him, right? How can any of us be saved? Mark, you, you referenced that. Jesus said, well, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And, and Peter says, Lord, we've left everything for you. We've risked everything for you. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one has given up anything for me that will not be returned to him a hundredfold. At the end of the day, what is Boaz risking if the God of Israel is his God? Like, what are we risking for the kingdom? What is the cost of discipleship? If you're serving that God, the God who gives you the inheritance of Christ and makes you a co-heir with him. Like, what are you actually giving up? If you sell all you have to buy the treasure in the field, what have you really sold? What have you, what have you really lost if you give away everything to gain the pearl of great price? Like, what have you actually sacrificed? And I'm not saying that to minimize our sacrifice. I'm, I'm saying it to make it seem like it's nothing, like to, to free us to do it, to live like Boaz, because what are you really risking? So I say Boaz was ri a risk taker, like the men who take the five and turn it to 10 and the two and turn it to four. But in the calculus of the kingdom, what are you really risking? What do you really, what does it really cost you? You're gaining, you're gaining the pearl of great price. So first, he's a man of duty in the law. Secondly, he's a man of risk, but glorious kingdom risk. And then thirdly, he's a man of blessing. And here's where we get back to the name. We get two men here. One man we know. We know his name, and one man is nameless. This other kinsman, we are just told, hey, friend. The literal within the Hebrew is, hey, Mr. So-and-so. That's what the commentators say. That's basically what it means. That his own kinsman says to him, hey, Mr. So-and-so, come sit down here. Now, maybe in real life, Boaz called him his name. Hey, Mr. Smith, good to see you. Come over here. But the author will not do it. The author will not give us the man's name. It's not worthy of remembering. For he is a man who did not count the cost. He is a man who did not take make the sacrifice. He's a man who preserved his own hide over showing hesed to Naomi and to Ruth and to Elimelech and to Melon and to Kilion. But Boaz is not such a man. 
he is not the man without any name. I, I just driving down here, I thought about that line from Bob Dylan in in his song Joker Man. I don't know if any of don't be distracted. <laughs> if you do. But but in but Gino will appreciate this. Gino, uh, but but in Joker Man, he he ta- he he uses that. What struck me just as I was driving down here, I don't made me think about it. But he he says, you look into the fiery furnace, see the rich man without any name. And he's talking about the the story there of of Lazarus and the rich man. And it it I, it struck me just because I said the line in my head without any name, and then I just heard Bob Dylan as I often do um, in my head. And it's interesting that Dylan points that out in that song. I look into the fiery furnace, see the rich man without any name. In that story, if it is a story, it's a confusion. Is that a parable or is that a real story? Like what's, it's not, it doesn't have the same form as a parable, but it feels like a parable. But it's interesting in that story, there's two men. One has a name. You know Lazarus, but the rich man is a rich man without any name. I love that Dylan points that out. Who is this guy? Does it matter? He's a man who thinks with the calculus of the economy, right? He's a rich man. He preserves what he has. He won't even share, you know, with with Lazarus. But Lazarus, you know. Lazarus, you know. This man is a rich man without any name. But Boaz... We know, and Boaz is blessed, and Boaz becomes the picture of the capital K, capital R, kinsman redeemer, and Boaz becomes the father of the kinsman redeemer, though the great, 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 great grandfather, but nonetheless, he is in the line and is privileged to have that role within the coming of the great King David and through David to the great King of Israel, the King of Kings. What we learn in Boaz And we're going to come back to those blessings. So actually the end of this with the blessings that are given to Boaz, I'm going to actually kind of link into next week when we think about Ruth. Because Ruth, Boaz is blessed here. It's a a very beautiful blessing that the the elders give to Boaz when he makes his titial sandal swap goes on uh, between the two. But the blessing is really to Boaz through Ruth. And so we're going to think about that next week. But what do we learn about blessing in this story? Here's what we learn. Boaz at least seems to understand that the way to fullness is the path of emptiness. He is willing to empty himself to receive the fullness of blessing. We learn this lesson in this book two ways. One, we learn it a painful way through Naomi. The only way Naomi receives fullness is through the very painful emptying that she goes through out there in Moab. And she even says, I went away full. I came back empty. Yet it was when her hands were finally emptied that the Lord filled them with more abundance than she could ever have imagined in Ruth and in Boaz. So we learn it very painfully in Naomi. And we learn it very joyfully in Boaz. Boaz does not have everything stripped from him. Boaz is willing to hold what he has very loosely. Boaz is willing to throw it down himself. Boaz is willing to take the path of emptiness. I'll marry the Moabite woman. I'll take whatever comes with that. I'll take on their debt, trusting that in fact, this is the way of fullness. And indeed it is. Boaz is the man whose name we remember. He's a man of great blessing. And we ought, we would do well to remember this. Because the economy of the world, the, 
Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. The conformity to the world in terms of this is that economic thinking which says, no, you get much by much. <laughs> fullness comes by attain grabbing. And Ruth, the story of Ruth reminds us fullness comes by emptying. And that's the irony of it. That's the mystery of it. You actually save your life by losing it. <laughs> You gain by emptying. And we see that with Boaz, as opposed to the man, the rich man, if you will, without any name. So as we look to Christ, may we see the Lord Jesus Christ through the lens of Boaz, the law keeper. May we see Christ through the lens of Boaz, the, the risk taker, the one willing to throw it all down. May we see Christ through the lens of this man with a name, the man of blessing. And through him, Christ, the giver of blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we, we thank you for Boaz. Indeed, we pray that you would make us more like him indeed. But Father, most of all, we thank you for that offspring of Boaz, that he raised up an honor to Elimelech, but Father, which was so much greater than just a blessing to Elimelech, for he became a blessing unto all the nations. And we thank you for him who is our kinsman redeemer, who picks us up from our destitution, who picks us up in the midst of all of our failings to be like Boaz. For we confess that we are not like Boaz. And we pray that you forgive us. And we thank you that in Christ you have made us whole. In Christ you have taken upon him all our debt, that we through him might have that pearl of great price, that treasure hidden in the field. So help us knowing what we have in Christ, reminded of that inheritance that is reserved for us, protected in heaven. Help us then now to be more like Boaz. Help us to go forth willing to quote unquote risk everything for the sake of the kingdom, knowing that in Christ all things are ours. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.